Welcome to Common Ground, a talk show encouraging debate and a deeper understanding of hot-button topics in Berlin and beyond. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Today's discussion may make you run hot and cold. Senior producer Dina El-Sayed explains. We used to think about climate change as something that was happening far away. Like this glacier collapsing in the Arctic eight years ago next to an expedition team. These days, however, climate change is right outside our front doors. The continuing fallout from that catastrophic winter storm that slammed the central and southern U.S. this week. Parts of Michigan and Wisconsin could see a 15 to 25 degree rise above normal, and it may get worse by midweek. Die Temperaturkurve zeigt nahezu für alle ab Wochenmitte steil nach oben. Scientists warn that global warming could become irreversible by 2027, but such predictions haven't spurred world leaders into quick action. Many people on both sides of the Atlantic hope the foot dragging will end now that Joe Biden is president of the United States. So far, he's striking the right tone. In my view, we've already waited too long to deal with this climate crisis. We can't wait any longer. Uh, We see it with our own eyes, we feel it, we know it in our bones. Other leaders, like Angela Merkel, pledged to join him in protecting our planet. But the steps Biden has taken, like recommitting the United States to the Paris Climate Accord and appointing a climate czar, were also the easiest. The president is more cautious about cutting U.S. reliance on fossil fuels, even though his country is the second largest emitter of carbon emissions in the world. Criticism of Merkel is growing, too, because of the slow phase-out of coal and continued reliance on fossil fuels in Germany. Fridays for Future activist Luisa Neubauer told a Swiss news agency recently that Merkel no longer deserves the moniker of climate chancellor. So will there be any real progress in the next few years in the fight to curb global warming and climate change? We find out next on Common Ground. That was senior producer Dina El-Sayed, and I'm happy to say we're back in the studio today. Joining us by phone to delve into what we can expect from the various new climate change policies are Carla Riemtsma, who is in Berlin and who co-founded Fridays for Future, Tim Gore, who heads the Low Carbon and Circular Economy Program at the Institute for European Environmental Policy in Brussels, And in Washington, we are on the line with Doug Hengel, senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund, who writes about global energy, climate, and resource challenges. Welcome, everyone. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having us. Hi. So, Doug, my first question goes to you about the recent virtual summit with U.S. President Joe Biden and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Biden said both leaders plan on upping the ante on climate change and spurring other countries into raising their own commitments. Is that significant and why? Yes. Well, I think President Biden came into office with a climate agenda. He In his first days, he issued a couple of executive orders underlining the importance that he and his administration attached to this issue, making the climate crisis at the center of U.S. foreign policy. And he's appointed some very prestigious people to lead that effort. And you can see in his early uh, phone calls with other foreign leaders, as well as the calls of Secretary of State Blinken with his counterparts, climate comes up in almost all of those conversations. But can Biden and Trudeau actually up the ante? I mean, do they have that kind of power in the world at this stage? 
President Biden plans to hold a leaders summit in conjunction with Earth Day in April and to reconvene the major economies forum on energy uh, and climate as well to bring all the key countries into the room together. So I think there is a growing consensus around the world. You can see this in the pledges from other countries like China and South Korea and Japan, as well as Europe, of course, that we need to do more in this space. The president has an ambitious plan. So I think there's a lot of prospect for being able to move this agenda forward leading up to the COP in November. Do we have any hints yet of what goals he will, uh, he being Mr. Biden, will set for the U.S. in terms of reducing carbon emissions? I mean, that's something that's been teased for his Earth Day summit. Well, he has talked repeatedly, and this is in his early executive orders, about a carbon-free electricity sector by 2035 and net zero emission economy by 2050. So they may not be formal pledges yet. But that's clearly where we're headed. Carlo, what do you say to the Biden pronouncements and what we've been hearing about his climate plan so far? Are you concerned that it doesn't go far enough? Well, on the one hand side, it's obviously considering who the other candidates have been at that election. It's a major win for the climate movement and everybody who is concerned about the future of basically our livelihoods. At the same time, what uh, Joe Biden presents is a plan which is quite ambitious, but still not at all ambitious enough for actually sticking to the Paris Agreement, especially the U.S., but also other Western countries as major pollutants also historically face the challenge that they must actually become climate neutral more than a decade before 2050, which actually sets the level much higher and we would need to be much more ambitious to actually stick to the Paris Agreement and make a just contribution, especially since there is that historic responsibility of the U.S. for a climate crisis. Well, it's clear that President Biden is trying to regain that momentum of the U.S. being a world leader in measures, including climate change. And I'm wondering, Carla, is it too little too late for the U.S. to be viewed in this capacity or in this in this way as being the world leader on climate strategies, given four years of Donald Trump? I think that is definitely a major or has been a major setback for the U.S. in becoming a climate leader. But if we face the reality, there is no Western country which is or which can be at the moment a climate leader, which is due to the historic responsibility for the climate crisis, as well as the fact that all the Western countries and the U.S. is a very big part of that are mostly profiting from the climate crisis or destructive policies which fuel the climate crisis right now. So it's really, really hard to become a leader when you're just profiting from the destruction which is happening right now. So I think that's a tough call to become a climate leader as a Western industrialized country without having really, really, really ambitious plans to curb emissions rather sooner than later. And what we're seeing is that even though people have nice talks and nice words and formulate goals which sound as if they're headed at least in the right direction, if you just look at the blank numbers, we're not seeing the emission reductions the people are on the one hand side saying they want to reach um, and the ones we're needing. So there is a really, really big gap between the ambition and what is actually happening on ground with the reduction of emissions. Tim, do you think that there is a fear or a hesitation among European leaders to really latch themselves back onto the U.S. or follow their leadership in this arena, considering that a Republican president could be coming to power again as early as 2024? 
Uh, well, we haven't seen that so far. I think that the European leaders are delighted to have what they perceive to be an ally back in the White House in terms of fighting climate change. So there's already been extensive outreach, of course, to the Biden administration. There's a lot of uh, sharing of notes about the EU's approach to cutting emissions with the European Green Deal, a major framework within which uh, the EU has set out its uh, long-term economic strategy and indeed its recovery from the COVID crisis. So there's a lot of coordination, uh, communication sharing already between the EU region and the US. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's, that's obviously a good thing. That said, I think that the US has indicated that they need to be a little bit humble in coming back into the international process. I think they are aware, fully aware that uh, they lost a significant amount of trust and that anything that they put on the table in the international negotiations now is going to have to come with very clear assurances that it can actually be delivered. Because, of course, people are going to say, well, you promised things uh, during Paris and, you know, look what happened to that. Uh, when you changed your administration. And I think we've heard some signals from Biden and from Kerry you know, suggesting that they're going to try and push through changes in the US economy that no subsequent president would be able to undo. But I think that is indeed the challenge. And, and I think European leaders and others around the world are quite entitled to, you know, to really push and to make sure that anything that is coming from the US is actually going to stick. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Kerry, and I assume you mean John Kerry, who's Biden's right. choice for the U.S. climate envoy or climate czar, as some are calling him. Doug, do you think that he is the right choice? I mean, can he get this job done? Does he even have a relationship with Europe or with other countries that would allow him to pontificate in a way um, about what's happening or what should happen with climate change policy? Yeah, I think he's absolutely the right choice. He's very committed to combating climate change. He's been involved in these issues for years. He attended the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro in 1992. He knows all the players. Uh, he's very energetic. You could describe him as tireless and even uh, relentless on these issues. Uh, he has an excellent relationship with President Biden, with Gina McCarthy, who is the national climate advisor to the president, chairs the domestic uh, national climate task force. So I think he is the right person for this uh, task. Uh, what about my friends on this side of the Atlantic, Carla and Tim? Do you agree? I mean, is this the person that you would like to see or are happy to see leading American policy when it comes to climate change? Well, from my side, I think, um, you know, for the international process, he's got very good credentials, you know, as Doug says. So I don't think there's a concern there. The only question really is whether the U.S. Congress can deliver the things that he wants to be able to say internationally. It's really important, obviously, that, that he is working closely with the domestic legislators in the U.S. to get things done at the domestic level. I think that's the real test now for the U.S. You know, you can come back with uh, nice speeches at the U.N., climate negotiations, but in the end, everyone's going to say, yeah, but what are you, are you able to walk the walk at home as well as uh, talk the talk at the international level? You know, we, they, they want to see action on the ground. They want to see new, uh, new efforts to cut emissions. They want to know that that is going to stick. Carla, is there anything you want to add to that? Yes, I would totally agree on the first part, which is about finding the majorities within domestic politics, which is, I think, very different from German politics, a much tougher call within the U.S. election and electoral system. What is, I think, really, really interesting and also is going to be interesting and inspiring for the EU about Biden's climate politics is that the way he's 
actually incorporates many other issues within climate politics, especially since there's always that discussion about climate politics being unjust, climate politics being against jobs, and the whole, his whole climate plan basically focuses around the most vulnerable communities, around black communities, communities with low income, and puts them on the forefront and saying, okay, if we want to tackle climate injustice, we have to find economic and social inequalities as well and find solutions which tackle all these problems, generate new jobs, qualified jobs. And I think that being at the core heart of his plan is very, very interesting, especially in the whole debate around climate politics being like for the elite and only rich people. And I think that is very, very interesting and relevant for him to gain the domestic support for his politics and can be interesting for other countries as well to have a look at that and keep a focus on those kind of measures which put most vulnerable communities at the forefront. Carla, if I could just ask you to follow up on whether you think that this issue of equality between the wealthy, the not so wealthy, whether it's countries or individuals, whether that will be part of the European Commission's comprehensive transatlantic green agenda. I actually don't really know right now how that's going to look. But if you look back at what the um, EU does, I don't really see much happening about equality issues within climate politics. You see it in form of the common agricultural policy, which really encourages big farmers and agricultural companies, like the really big ones. Also in the Green New Deal, it's not as often about like the low-income communities, about not-so-wealthy communities, and especially the focus if you like go on the macro level and see it from the worldwide perspective, looking at vulnerable communities from the most affected people in areas from the climate crisis in the global south, um, there is not much happening right now from the EU level. And I think that's a really, really yeah, spot we're missing out on right now and which needs to be filled within the next few years because the climate crisis is already happening right now. And we need to strengthen those countries who already face the consequences of the climate crisis in form of droughts and floods and hurricanes and all those different natural catastrophes. We need to strengthen those and especially with financial funds, I think that's the most obvious thing. And I think there is the, the EU is quite shy around that. We're going to talk more about the European role in climate change in a moment after a short break. Stay tuned. Hi everyone, I'm Maurice Frank, editor of the Berliner Zeitung English Edition, which is a proud partner of Common Ground. Is it hard for you to figure out what's going on in Berlin because everything you read or hear is in German? We at Berliner Zeitung English Edition can help, providing you with all the news you can use in English, whether on politics, business or culture. We also offer riveting interviews and commentary. Look for us at berliner-zei. Or just type in Berliner Zeitung English Edition into your search engine. I look forward to seeing you there. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, the host of Common Ground. And I'm Dina El Sayed, the senior producer. Each week, we bring you a new lively discussion on a hard hitting topic. If you want to learn more about our podcast, check out our website at commongroundberlin.com. The episodes are free to download, but they aren't free to create. Common Ground depends on grants as well as donations from listeners like you. So if you want to help us out, 
please click on the donate button at commongroundberlin.com. And thanks for listening. Welcome back to Common Ground. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, and joining me in Berlin are Carla Rintzma of Fridays for Future, Tim Gore of the Institute for European Environmental Policy in Brussels, and in Washington, Doug Hengel, senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund. Before the break, we were talking about U.S. and European plans to tackle climate change. And Tim, I wanted to ask you to talk a bit about a recent report you co-authored that found the poorest half of Europeans cut emissions by almost a quarter, compared to emissions from the wealthiest 10 percent continuing to rise. So how do you get everyone to pull their weight when it comes to climate policies? Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is critical um, to understand the relationship between economic inequality and the climate crisis. And the fact is that over the last 20, 30 years in Europe, there's been some progress in cutting emissions. But at the same time, we've had economic inequality increasing. And the result of those two trends is that it's poorer Europeans that have been the ones whose carbon footprints have declined and the carbon footprints of the richest 10% have actually continued to increase. So if you want to get serious, if Europe is able to achieve the deeper emission reduction targets that are now needed over the next 10 years, they've set a target to cut emissions by 55% below 1990 levels uh, by 2030. So to hit that uh, much tougher target, you can't have uh, the richest citizens in the continent essentially free riding. They're going to have to cut their emissions as well. And I think the other thing is that, as you're suggesting, the types of changes that are required now to hit these deeper emission reduction targets they're going to affect many more aspects of all of our lives. And to expect people to change their lives, they're going to want to make sure that everybody's doing their fair share. You need to have this sense that uh, we're all contributing, that this is a fair effort, and that you don't have some parts of society to whom the rules don't apply, who can just carry on flying around you know, in private jets or you know, buying mega yachts or whatever it is. So baking in a fair approach, a sense of uh, equity and justice at the heart of climate policy is absolutely critical to delivering on these deeper emission reduction targets that we have to hit uh, over the next decade. And I think there are definitely opportunities to do that in the European Green Deal. There's a big package of legislation coming in June, which is going to look at all sorts of different aspects of EU energy policy, transport policy, uh, agriculture, and so on. And um, it's really key that in each of those files, there is careful attention paid to and make sure that it will be fairly implemented with everybody doing their fair share and not again uh, expecting just poorer Europeans to carry the can, because if that's the case, I think some of the proposals will be dead on arrival. Doug, what about in the United States? Is this issue of equality or the wealthy having to do more than they're doing other than flying around in, in jets, uh, to quote what Tim was saying, um, you know, what, how much of an issue is that for Mr. Biden and for Mr. Kerry to try and achieve more equality, not just tackle the climate problems, but to have it done equitably among wealthy and not so wealthy? Yes, that that is clearly a priority for President Biden and his administration. He has called for $2 trillion in spending on clean energy infrastructure and research uh, and development. And a large part of that is supposed to go to, uh, if this is enacted, to communities that have suffered from climate change. He's also, I think it's important to point out in his executive order that was issued at the end of January, He talked about empowering workers through revitalizing energy communities, because obviously 
those who have been working in fossil fuels, there's going to be some dislocations, right? And he has talked about creating well-paying union jobs uh, in clean energy, uh, projects that prevent environmental damage, things like plugging leaks in oil and gas wells, reclaiming abandoned mine lands. Uh, and he has met with union leaders to talk about this. So as part of rebuilding U.S. infrastructure, this will be a key priority. Let's turn to Germany for a moment, um, Doug. I'm wondering how important you think Germany is to the climate agenda. I mean, we've talked about the U.S., we've talked about Brussels, but I'm wondering how important Germany is to this equation. Well, Germany is very important. Obviously, it's a leading economy. I think Germany has shown the way on how to integrate a large amount of renewables to the power grid without uh, suffering uh, adverse consequences. And they continue to push uh, the limits on that. So I think they have been uh, clearly they've been a leader on the climate front. But do you think, uh, for example, this is, I know, unrelated, but there's a parallel here that I'm trying to draw um, with NATO spending, for example. It took a lot of pushing on the part of the United States, even by Donald Trump, to get them to move that dial a little bit faster than they've been moving it. But certainly with climate change policy, they have been sort of reluctant with getting rid of coal and with changing cars. I mean, I, I did a show recently on electric cars that showed that Germans were really struggling to keep up with Tesla and others. So I'm wondering, does Germany need more prodding? I mean, is it, you know, based on what Carla was saying, there are some questions about how, you know, how far along or how quickly Germany is moving in the direction needed in order to achieve some protections for the climate. I think every country has its domestic challenges and the path forward for every country is not going to be the same. Obviously, Germany has depended uh, extensively on uh, coal because they've had coal resources, right? They have a plan in place now. I'm not, I don't feel like I'm in a position to, to comment on that, but some of the same issues that are present in the United States with terms of communities that have relied on coal and fossil fuels over time, they have to have uh, alternatives. And so I think Germany is moving in that direction. And so I think I'd rather leave it to the Europeans to comment on whether it's sufficient or not. Go ahead, Carla. I think to directly add to that, it's if you look at Germany, Germany is quite often framed as if it were a climate leader, and especially Chancellor Merkel is also put in place as the climate chancellor, and everybody's talking about her as somebody being who follows ambitious climate politics. But if you have a close look on what is happening in Germany right now, we're quite far off from that. There is the climate targets, which are definitely not in place for reaching just contribution to the Paris Agreement. And as well, you have to add on to that the coal phase out, which is now dated to 2038, which is much too late to even stick to those goals, which are not ambitious enough for sticking to the Paris Agreement. So there is a major, major gap between what Germany would need to do and what Germany is actually doing already in the field of energy politics. And if you look at the broader field of uh, climate politics, there has been the big so-called climate cabinet last year, which was supposed to find a plan for how Germany could reach its own goals. But in the end, it put in place a carbon price somewhere between 10 and 25 euros, which is even economists, conservative economists uh, agree on that. It would just be useless and have not a real effect in reducing carbon emissions. The transport sector hasn't curbed its emissions in the past 20 years. So there's quite a big ambition gap and the 
German government only reached the goal for 2020 due to the coronavirus pandemic. Otherwise, we would have failed to stick to the goal it set for itself. So I think, yeah, to just put it in perspective where Germany is standing right now. So do you think then that U.S. pressure will help make Germany more responsive or to move faster? Or do you think that it doesn't make a difference anymore and that Germany is going to do what Germany will do? I think it can definitely make a difference to see that Germany cannot put itself in that position and saying, yes, we are a climate leader in case that as soon as there are other Western industrialized countries also following ambitious climate politics. So I think that can definitely help, as well as there are going to be big market shifts when we're talking about carbon border taxes and carbon leakage, maybe the idea of a global carbon pricing market. I think all those can be measures which they, they won't like happen in the next one or two years, but it will definitely help to have more Western and industrialized countries following those politics, especially that you don't have um, a president who doesn't believe in climate change at all. So I'm wondering what happens with Fridays for Futures plans in 2021. Obviously, there were many protests before the pandemic sort of put an end to most of those. But now that we seem to be coming out of, at least hopefully, out of the pandemic phase and life is supposed to return to normal uh, later in 2021, do you expect that there will be more protests? Or, or, or do you think that movements like Fridays for Future are satisfied enough with the progress that's being made that we won't see that sort of thing anymore? No, I think that nobody is definitely happy with, yeah, what is happening right now in climate politics. So the movements won't fizzle out and say, yeah, we're happy right now. Um, there is from Fridays for Future, the next global strike is going to take place on the 19th of March. It's going to be depend on how the situation in the countries is, whether it's going to be a digital strike, some kind of like maybe demonstrations with bicycles or something. So what you can do that is coronavirus safe, but still a global climate strike on the streets. But I think what is really, really important for many environmental groups at the moment is that people are talking about going back to normality. And that is not a scenario which we can agree on as people who are yeah, fighting for our future and even some people fighting for their present because the normality before COVID-19 wasn't a good one. We were are amidst the climate crisis and we're fueling it day after day after day. So what we actually need is recovery packages which focus around the climate crisis, which don't put funds into the fossil fuel industry, which is happening right now. I think already among the G20 states, there are roughly $250 billion going into technologies which are based on fossil fuels and roughly $120 billion which are going into green technologies. So we're seeing that we're not actually tackling the climate crisis, but all of those funds being allocated through those recovery packages which is topic a lot of environmental groups put at the forefront right now to say, if we take lots of monies, which we probably cannot spend in the future because we spend it all right now on those recovery packages, we have to allocate them justly and put them somewhere where they are not destructing our future, but actually help reaching the Paris Agreement. So that is something where all those groups will be talking about throughout the next year because there will definitely be more recovery packages to come. And this, at the same time, there are also on the local level, I think lots of 
especially when we're talking about transport. Many people are now going back to the cars, so people are about, okay, should we make our cities more car-friendly, which is definitely not a sustainable way of building cities right now because what we need is to strengthen shared mobility, um, public transport, bicycles, and that stuff. So I think there is going to be a huge campaigning around climate topics, even though it's not going to look as we've seen it in 2019 with hundreds of thousands of people on the street. Tim and Doug, and well, you can answer in that order. Um, we've talked a lot about the U.S. and Europe and Germany, but I'm wondering what other countries do we need to hear more from if we're going to get climate change under control? Well, I mean, you don't get very far in any conversation about climate change without thinking about China, such an important player, and uh, obviously made a very significant announcement last year, making the pledge to go carbon neutral by 2060. Um, but the big question now is what happens over the next 10 years with emissions in China? Uh, China's said that they will peak their emissions before 2030, but it makes all the difference in the world exactly when before 2030 that is. Is it nearer to 2025 or is it nearer to 2030 uh, when the emissions peak? So that's a really key issue that all uh, countries around the world will be looking for a signal from China on uh, this year ahead of the COP. It may well be that they're also... Uh, holding their cards close to their chest and waiting to see what happens from the U.S., what kind of numbers the Biden administration put on the table. So that only reinforces the importance of those numbers from the U.S. when they come out with them. There, there is the potential for a higher U.S. target to trigger increased ambition in countries like China and others around the world. So certainly China is absolutely critical here and is working on its next five-year plan, which will have some of these uh, details in it. I guess India, of course, as well as the, as the fourth biggest emitter in the world, uh, also has a key role to play. And you're seeing huge acceleration of uh, solar energy in India and signs that uh, the country is starting to move away from its very heavy reliance on coal power. Maybe that coal power has peaked in India. But these two countries alone you know, could really start to move on to a totally different development pathway compared to the one that the industrialized countries were on and the path that they had set out upon over the last 20, 30 years. And that's very significant. But then, uh, you know, it's important as well to think about all of the smaller um, and highly vulnerable countries around the world. And that's where you can find the best examples of genuine climate leadership. You know, countries like Bangladesh, countries like Costa Rica, some of the Pacific Islands. These are uh, countries that have very low, if any, meaningful historic responsibility for the crisis. These are countries which are absolutely on the front line in terms of climate impact. And yet they have decided that the best course of action is to be at the forefront, to do the most uh, possible to fight this crisis, to show that it is possible. If a country like they can do it, uh, then so can the bigger industrialized countries. And so, you know, it's important that we don't lose them in this conversation, because in the end, that is where the moral urgency comes from. That is where the communities uh, live that will be most affected by the decisions in countries like China, U.S. Uh, and Europe. Doug, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I, mean, I agree with everything Tim said. We have to remember that the United States and the European Union account for maybe one quarter of global emissions. China accounts for almost 30 percent now of global emission by itself. So, you know, the rest of the world, 75 percent roughly. And so, yeah, China and India are obviously critical to this and the other fast growing uh, developing countries, particularly in Asia. Part of President Biden's plan is to develop a climate finance 
Defense Plan to assist developing countries implement ambitious climate measures, because that's where the economic growth is happening, and we have to move them away from fossil fuels uh, on a cleaner path. And I would just underline uh, what Tim said, too, about China's commitment, very important. But if scientists talk about needing to cut emissions by roughly 50 percent by 2030, if China is only talking about peaking by then, uh, those numbers just don't add up. I have one last question for each of you, and if you could come up with a quick or shorter answer. And it's a big question, so it's, it's, I'm asking a lot here. But do you think the U.S., Europe, and other key countries are going to be able to get a handle on climate change before we reach the point of no return, which many scientists predict could come as early as 2027 when we talk about global warming? And I'll start with you, Carla. On the one hand side, if I look back at what has happened the past years, the perspective is quite grim. We are looking back at 40 years of where we've known that the climate crisis is man-made, that it's going to be bad, that we have to curb emissions to turn it away, and still not at all enough has happened. But on the other hand side, what we're seeing right now is that there is a massive turn up in the society engaging and calling for climate neutral policies, that we are having a more level playing field if you look out onto the global perspective, if you look at countries who are already facing the consequences of the climate crisis, that most political parties and political leaders are at least saying that they want to combat the climate crisis. So I think the worst thing we could do right now is to lose hope because if we say, okay, no, there is no possibility to stay below 1.5 degrees and to turn around about the climate crisis, then it's definitely not going to happen. And we so much need that hope and those people calling out for that, going onto the streets and calling out politicians to act and calling out when they don't act and actually lie to us what they're doing quite often when they're talking about the climate I think that's the most important thing we have, because if we don't have that hope and if we lose our faith in, yes, combating the climate crisis, we are definitely not going to make it. And also, if you talk about the climate crisis, there is not that one point of no return, because also a global heating of 1.6 or 1.7 degrees is much better than a global heating of like three or four degrees where we're heading right now. If you look at the consequences it's going to have for communities at the water lines and in the global south. So I think every tenth of a degree is important and it's going to save lives from millions of people. Doug, what do you think? As Carlos said, there has been a sort of a sea change in public pressure. You can see companies every day coming out with net zero pledges. You've seen increasing pressure from the investor community on companies to and banks to take into account their climate impact of their activities. So that's very important. Also, uh, extremely important is international cooperation is required, particularly to develop the technologies that we don't have yet that we need for deep decarbonization. And there, geopolitics plays an important role. And will some of the conflicts between the United States and China, if they carry over into this space, it's a serious, serious problem. So we need to be able to work together, the United States, Europe, China, everyone, to address these challenges. And if other geopolitical conflicts, trade conflicts, et cetera, invade that space, we're in serious trouble. Tim, what do you think? Are we going to be able to get a handle on climate change before the point of no return? Well, I think, you know, often working on these topics, you know, you're caught between hope and despair 
almost every day. You know, there's reasons to be despondent. If we look at the delay over the last 30, 40 years of action, if we look at some of the ways that recovery funds at the moment are still flowing into fossil fuel, there's many reasons to feel like we're not going to get this done. On the other hand, there's lots of reasons to be hopeful as well and no greater than the pressure that we're seeing from Fridays to Future and many others around the world. You know, the thing that gives me hope is that change can suddenly happen very quickly. You know, we just need to get to those tipping points where all of a sudden it feels absolutely normal to cut our emissions, to live slightly different lifestyles rather than just to continue on the path that we're on. And when we reach those tipping points, then all of a sudden things can happen quickly. And the, and the pandemic has taught us that, of course. You know, if nothing else, it's taught us that change can come quicker than we expected. So, yeah, in that sense, it's very important to remain hopeful and to keep pushing. So that was Tim Gore asking us to stay hopeful. He heads the Low Carbon and Circular Economy Program at the Institute for European Environmental Policy in Brussels. And I'm also joined by Carla Reemtsma, who is the co-founder of Fridays for Future, and Doug Hengel, who is in Washington and is a senior fellow on global energy, climate, and resource challenges at the German Marshall Fund. Thank you, everyone, for being on Common Ground. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks so much. Thank you. Our senior producer is Dina El-Sayed, and I'm Soraya Sarhadi-Nelson. Thank you for listening, and please join us again next Monday for another episode of Common Ground. Our program is made possible through a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Energy. I'd also like to extend a warm welcome to our new partner, Berliner Zeitung English Edition. You can download all of our episodes wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to check out our website, commongroundberlin.com.